Hello, my friends. Today, Joel is talking to Nicola, research scientist and program manager at MIT. And they discuss how Nicola is working on ways to make carbon fiber out of fossil fuel byproducts. Benefits of carbon fiber in constructing cars, planes, and rockets, and the machine learning tech Nicola employs for big data analytics in his research. All of this right here, right now, on the Modern CTO Podcast. Here we go. This is the Modern CTO Podcast. I was super excited to talk with you, mostly because I'm a nerd. But a few years ago, I was researching the carbon fiber nanotubes and what they were doing with them for power lines as a potential power line. I was so excited about it. And then I found out that they were only making them like very, very small. That's right. (laughs) So they're not the same thing. Carbon nanotubes, carbon fibers are very different. But the effort, both academic but also, you know, from a manufacturing point of view, is just that making a lot of it, uh, and um, and it's 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 a challenge that has been tackled. Things got better, but still, we're not there. And it's actually part of you know me being here. It's about some of the challenges, maybe, and and some of the things that we could do about towards that end. But to be fair, transmission lines are just one aspect. I'm sure you know carbon fibers are potentially to be used, I mean, carbon fibers and nanotubes, on many other things, especially for what we call structural applications. And that means making things actually are robust, just as good as steel, basically, right? And so things like making a car out of carbon fiber, there are applications, by the way, structural applications where, you know, you can buy a bike made out of carbon fiber, right? Or a tennis racket or, you know, those things exist. But they're low volume, very specific, very niche type of things. So the idea is that can we make, literally, can we replace steel out of that? And um, and that's where the challenge is because, again, in terms of cost, we're not there. In terms of some consistency in the feedstocks, it's not there. In terms of sustainability, we're not really there. You know, it takes a lot of energy, takes a lot of emissions. All things that, again, there's a very active field of research. Um, and, and, you know, again, I'm happy to talk about more in details of what entails. How do you get the material? It's a good question. So most of the carbon fibers, and again, we need to distinguish between carbon fibers and carbon nanotubes. They, they're made very differently, um, and they actually are very different at the end in terms of product that you actually make. And we can go to that. So let's start with the fibers first. Most of the fibers are actually made from polymer, from a polymer, specific polymer. It's, it's a fancy name. It's called polyacrylonitrile. It's, it's, it's a polymer. So it's a chain of small molecules attached to each other, very long, and it's derived from petroleum for the most part. So, so much for, you know, it's a green product. It's still made out of petroleum, which isn't a bad thing per se, but it requires essentially taking petroleum, refining it, getting feedstocks, basically small molecules, ethylene and other molecules that you can actually make, not for necessarily for combustion. So it's not like a residual from, uh, from say, making gasoline or diesel. It's specifically to actually produce it, and big companies actually make it. And then the long molecules, you take them and you make fibers, which you then cook at very high temperature, so then they become basically like sheets of graphite on top of each other, which are actually very long. That's kind of roughly how you make it. The process, as you can imagine, is quite energy intense because you have to reach very high temperature. Graphite is nice. Graphite is one of the best materials you'll find it everywhere 
you'll find it in lubricants, you'll find it in, in, in batteries. Every lithium-ion batteries has a chunk of graphite in it, so that's your DNA of the negative electron. So um, you have that. So gravity is a great material, and it's great because it's actually robust. It's actually the strongest material, and it shares that kind of commonality with lots of other commodities. So CNTs, carbon nanotubes, are basically similar. Rather than being sheets, they're basically tubes. Um, graphene is just one layer of graphite. So there's a lot of commonalities, and they're very strong because literally what makes it strong, take two carbon atoms, you put them together to form this network. It's one of the strongest bonds you can actually have. In fact, I joke sometimes, there's a commercial from a company that I won't name that says, no, diamonds are forever. That's not true. <laughs> uh, that's not true. Um, diamond is not is a different kind of form of carbon, and it's not forever. It's nice and all, but graphite is forever because the bond that you actually establish to make it graphite is forever. So if you want to give like a nice ring, you're a nerd, you want to give a ring to like your girlfriend or something, it should be with a chunk of graphite. I'm not sure, you know, she'll receive it all right, but if you want to make the point that that's, that's a link for it, you know, it's a bond forever, that's how you sort of make it. No, but jokes aside, graphite is actually very strong. Have you ever... Earlier, you were talking about the process of actually making the carbon fibers. Yeah. Have you ever actually done that yourself? So, good question. Yes and no. So, I've done it in the sense that most of the contribution that I provide is computation, meaning that we actually model the process. So, did I make it? Yes, in a computer. We make it all the time. It's easy, convenient, no problem. As far as actually making carbon fibers, we don't have the facilities at MIT to actually do it, believe it or not. Um, because, again, the energy that that actually takes it's so incredibly high that it's it's you know essentially you either have it or not. That being said, though, we do make a lot of carbon materials. We make nanotubes. We make I made it myself nanotubes. I made graphene and all the likes. But it takes a slightly different approach. And I'm not going to go too much into detail because it's actually quite complex. But essentially, one way to reduce the energy is to actually use basically what we call catalysts. They're usually metals. So what that does basically, a metal, if you add a metal to a process, that metal basically allows carbon to come together naturally at a much lower temperature. So rather than being like 3,000 or more, it could be like seven, 800 degrees Celsius, which is high, but much more achievable. You can actually achieve that with very simple means. And so with that, you can actually grow. The problem with that is you can't really use it for carbon fibers because we're not talking about just a single sheet of carbon here. You need like a bulk, you know, literally like a fiber, which is much bigger. And so with that, we, we actually rely on, on that. But that being said, we actually have been working with, uh, with our collaborators of Bridge to actually being basically, they, we take their process, we take their chemistry, we actually have computer games, if you will, where rather than being playing actually games, we actually make the materials and we actually then deploy the simulation, being like, Adam, you start moving around according to the law of physics, that chemistry, and then we, we put together this, basically this sort of fake fibers in the computer, which we then test and then see if what is what we, it's actually what the sponsor, which in this case is the federal government, wants or not out of this application. And then we start tuning parameters. So what if we do this? What if we do that? Because the goal here is that we want to have, to the best of our abilities, essentially fibers that could be used to make cars at large scale, like your F-150 for that matter. You know, that not like the, the Ferraris of the world, like just really the cars that people really, really want to buy for lots of advantages. And I'm happy to go into some details. Now. But before I get there, 
just want to point to the difference in cost because that kind of gives you a little bit of a sense of what we're talking about here. So right now, cars are made out of steel, okay, for the most part. And so steel, it's usually, I mean, I'm, I haven't checked recently the commodity prices, you know, with all the inflation, that might actually be completely screwed. But usually, say, before the inflation started to rise, it was around $75, 50, 50 cents to 75 cents per, uh, per pound. Now, aluminum is also very much used, and that goes to about $1.5, $2. But obviously, it's a lot higher. It's two, three times higher. Carbon fibers at the moment for automotive, so good enough for it, uh, to actually make the body or the chassis of it, it goes about $10 to $15 a pound. So it's a lot higher, right? And so because of that, only very niche application, or where really cost isn't a matter, you know, an issue. So we developed processes, and we actually did the full, as it's called, techno-economic analysis, basically evaluating the cost of individual component, indeed, including making a factory. We were able to bring down the cost down using some specific type of pitches and, and, and processes and all that to about $3 a pound, which is what the Department of Energy, the sponsor of this program, wants to see. It's still high. You know, it's still about, I would say, five, six times higher than steel. Do you need less of it? That's a good, that's a good question. Yes, absolutely. So, and in fact, it's actually not limited to, to cars. If you want to make anything out of carbon fibers, the moment you start doing that, because it's a, it's a stronger material, but also you need less of it, you can definitely recoup a little bit by using less. And in fact, the way you actually make a car with carbon fibers uh, or anything, it's not really like you're taking a process for steel and you combine it just to replace steel. You have to basically redesign the whole process. And I'm happy to go into some details about that. Essentially, yes, you, you can recoup, but it's still a little bit higher, but it's okay. You know, given the fact that the car is not just about the chassis, there's a whole lot more going on. Even if you have a cost multiplier, that it's a little higher, meaning that the cost of actually using that material will still lead to actually a cost that's a little higher based on that. But then the whole car, let's say, comes down to be lighter to allow for everything else to be light. And I'm thinking about, so for example, brakes don't need to be as, as big. The structure of the car doesn't have to be for a crash. It doesn't need to be that strong because the car is much lighter. But I'm even thinking about batteries. You know, So if you have an electric vehicle, uh, you don't need to have so much of a large battery pack to sustain because the car is lighter, right? And it's complicated because it depends really what kind of you're targeting and all that. But essentially, yes, there's a component that comes down to the fact that it's a lighter system, but the whole overall car being lighter allows you to actually benefit from not just the carbon fiber itself, but all the rest of it. You have less batteries, for example, you have smaller brakes, everything becomes cheaper at that point. You have to redesign the car, but that's okay. But the key here is that you cannot achieve that when the fiber costs about 10 to $15 a pound. It's still way too high. Now, I've got a question about the look of carbon fiber. I have a carbon fiber gun holster. I've seen the hood of a car that's carbon fiber. It has this very distinct pattern. Is that something they're adding in after the process or is that just what the carbon fiber looks like? No, so that, that's a good question actually. And in fact, there's different types of looks. No, it is actually specific because of fiber. Think about a fiber as literally what it is. It's a fiber. Fiber means like, you know, when you move and if you take like a piece of cloth, what that basically is, it's a fiber. So it's that, you know, it's, it's being sort of woven into a fabric. 
The way you make carbon fiber composites, so you not, don't really use the fiber per se. What you do, you actually make a composite, which basically means like you make a cloth, and then you actually sort of embed that cloth into a polymer, which you then you cure, and that gives you the structure. And you do that based on the needs of the particular thing that you're making. It could be a racket, it could be whatever, a car, a bike, whatever it is. But if you start looking closely, you do see it's a matrix made out of uh, a woven material. And the reason for that is because traditional, the carbon fiber industry took a lot of inspiration from actually, you know, the way we actually make clothes for good reasons. I mean, that's basically the same idea. But also because it's really on, the only way you take a one-dimensional object like a wire and you make it good, you know, for being a bulk system so supporting loads and these days computational i mean you get software that allows you to actually take given the property of a fiber one single fiber to actually design and to actually make it so for example you can go on youtube and, and check how they make a, a wind turbine blade it's all carbon fibers and you can see that this machine goes back and forth and back and forth in kind of not necessarily obvious ways but then it really makes like a really a cloth and then there's a layer of epoxy, another polymer that goes on top of that. It's cure, and then another one, and then you're going to... So, I mean, you make that continuously, which is a completely different way that you will make anything compared to, say, steel, where you either cast it, so you've got a big stamp to cast it, or it's machined out of a big chunk. Now, I want to sort of touch back to earlier. Sure. I am married. I've got a wife and two kids and a third on the way, but... When we were shopping for wedding rings, I think the band that I got, I don't know if this is true, so you can fact check the the ring salespeople, but they said it was like tungsten and that's what they make rocket engine nozzles out of. It is true. Okay, cool. It is. It is true. I mean, titanium, it's, it's not just nozzles. I mean, the titanium actually sustains, it's a very strong material to sustain high temperatures. So yeah, sure. You, you can definitely, I mean, keep in mind that it's never about just one, in this case, element. It's all about alloys, right? And so if you look at steel, there's really no really steel. There's like tens of hundreds of different types of steel. And so, uh, and they actually have basically ratios of different elements. You got, for instance, carbon, obviously carbon and iron, that's what steel is. But also you have also other little things, additives and other metals, nickel and, and copper. So to allow for the kind of whatever you need to actually have, maybe it's a little more malleable, a specific temperature. So when you actually cast it, it's easier, you know, that kind of thing. So, so there's a lot of different types of steel and, and you can search it. And the same is true for everything. So I'm sure it might be true also for your ring. But yeah, that titanium, yes, absolutely, absolutely. I'm, I'm old style, My, mine is gold. So, uh, but it's white gold, which basically means that, you know, there's nickel in it. And so <laughs> what I'm saying is, it's all about literally not different than cooking. You know, you, you add your base recipe, for your cake, but then I'm sure barbecue for that matter. Think about barbecue since you guys are, you know, in barbecue country. <laughs> Ideally, you can make a brisket, barbecue brisket, but the way you guys make it, it's different than, than, you know, they do it in Memphis or they do it somewhere else, right? So it's the same idea. It really depends on traditions and what you really need to achieve, the process and all that. Now, what would the forever ring look like? You said there's, I think it was graphite or graphene, something that's forever if you wanted it. What would that ring actually look like if you made it? It's a good question. So if the ring will be made uniquely by fibers, so that will be not composite, just the fiber alone, that will be pretty much it. Um, it's basically a chunk of graphite, graphite around your finger. That might be pretty much it. What color is graphite? So it's, graphite is blackish in the sense that it's actually a semi-metal. 
it's it's a very complex, you know, to explain. You can actually take a diamond, you compress it, and you know, under specific condition, high temperature, and it becomes graphite. So it becomes from transparent to black. So it will be black, and that's okay. But you know, it will be black. So it's the only element I want to say in the periodic table that allows you to do that. By the way, there's nothing else, and it's actually one of the reasons why life exists in the first place because the flexibility of carbon is is unmatched by any other element. Yeah, I've got something I've been wrestling with that I'm hoping you can help me clear up my thinking on. So I was, you know, researching you and smart materials, and it seems like they're constantly doing elementary things that computers do. Mm-hmm. And like on, you know, very basic things. And then I see computers, you know, silicon-based chips. And I, I was trying to find where's the line between the computing we know today, like how we're having this conversation, and when the smart materials are really smart. So if I understand the question is to say, is what is the limit of silicon? And then we go to some other material. Is that is that what you're asking? Or Yeah, would that be... Like if you have a computer and it's organic, right? And, and they're showing it being able... Like this, these materials being able to think or do something or whatnot. And then you have the computers that are silicon-based. Is it the material itself is this like this is silicon based intelligence this is graphite based intelligence so it's a very deep question it's actually a you know the question that not necessarily for me as a material scientist but more as a computer scientist the question will could be translated says can a silicon based computer achieve the level of consciousness that a biological material would now that assumes the fact that we know what consciousness is in first place and we don't Frankly, we don't know. That's why, you know, people saying artificial intelligence, generalistic, you know, not like specific, like for, you know, the one that be able to be like how 9,000 in 2001, you know, space obviously, you know, that, that kind of stuff. That is, we don't really know what that implies. That being said, though, a lot of the technology that goes into computers today, silicon one, isn't very different than the one when silicon was pretty much deployed by Intel back in the 60s. You know, still we're relying on a transistor, which has changed, obviously, you know, in all these years. But fundamentally, meaning like the way it's it's designed to be, it's the same. You know, you got current going from one way to another, and there's a, there's a gate, literally, that stops it and then makes a switch. So that's basically that. So all our computers work in the same way. We just have many more, many, many more, trillions now, you know, rather than just a few. But the the idea is basically pretty much the same. So would you be able to make a computer out of graphene? Sure. But it will probably not be very different than what you actually have one made of silicon. It will be faster, will be possibly, but, you know, it's, it's, it's about performance rather than philosophically being different. Does that make sense? Yeah. And then what type of technologies are helping you and your teams make materials smarter? It's a good question. It's a very good question. And I appreciate you asking it because it is really changing the way we do science these days. So to answer to that question, let's go back a few years. And a few years means a lot of years. Think about Edison when he was actually making the light bulb. If, you, if people had a chance to go to uh, the, the Edison Museum in New Jersey, basically where you have this lab, it's fascinating because you go in and you find a lab that will pretty much be old, but you know, still viable these days. However, what will not be viable these days is the storeroom. There, you'll find all bits of things. You, you find elephant hair, you find fabric from the Middle East, you find all these other stuff that users are collecting with the idea that 
He was looking for the right filament, for the right material to that. So in science, that's called the Edisonian approach, meaning that if you really want to discover new stuff, you'll have to try every possible thing you can think of. And literally, that means you get the stuff, you put it on, you, you produce it. And to be fair, Edison took like it took him like a significant amount of years to actually go and almost a few bankruptcies to actually get where it needs to be. And to be fair, that's what science did. I would say more technology did for a long time. You just try until it works. I'm not going to say it doesn't work. I mean, there's plenty of examples that way it did work. However, when you develop complex systems, complex materials or devices, it just takes a long time. And we don't have that much time. So you use computers, simulation tools. They actually are literally helping the, the you know, designing new materials. Now, I got to do a pretty cool interview with Bob Suter. He's the head of quantum computing over at IBM, or one of the heads. Sure. And when I was asking him about practical applications of quantum computing happening now, he listed a couple, one of them being researchers being able to run quantum computations that they need to run for their quantum research. But another one that he mentioned that was in the near future or currently happening, I, I can't remember, was specifically for the case of modeling particles, modeling atoms, modeling these things. Have you ever used quantum computing in your actual work? No. And, and for, for I don't even know if it's available, frankly, to the level that we need, but no. The reason is actually not necessarily because quantum computing is bad, but quantum computing is fundamentally different than computing, let's say conventional computing. One of the main differences is that here, silicon-based computing, let's say, relies on a sequence of zeros and ones. And so essentially it allows you to do computation on a binary level. Quantum computing you know, takes that beyond and, and you know, it discretizes a lot. So basically it means that you have a whole lot more possibilities than that. But what I'm saying is all the tools and the software that we use and we develop are still based on the conventional stuff. Bringing it over on the other side will require many years of development simply of the tools, not even to do anything useful for it, but eventually the tools, which will become available. I was just curious if it's come up because, you know, being in a software engineer, like I imagine the way that it would happen initially would be you're using some software on, on a normal silicon computer that you're using and then you want to run some simulation and it might offload part of that rendering to a quantum computer, you know, sending it over to it and then pulling the result back. Frankly, I, again, I'm not super I'm not qualified at all to actually, you know, speak in detail because we never really use it. But um, one really one question is always about performance of the simulation. As I was saying before, Mm -hmm. You know, super, conventional supercomputers who are now, right now, almost, you know, if not they're already, you know, in the axle regime, which basically means like it's incredibly fast that we can do a lot of things at the same time. If actually quantum computing doesn't really solve that problem necessarily by itself in a small scale, what allows you to do actually look at different possibilities and probabilities. But if I can model a system where I need to model, say, 10,000 atoms, let's just say, in a quantum computer, then I'll have to do it in a conventional system. So what I'm saying is there are opportunities, but it's not that I'm comparing a quantum computer to a laptop. I'm comparing a quantum computer to, uh, you know, billion dollar worth of equipment that is actually sitting on a national lab. So that's that's kind of uh, a little bit where, where the discussion is. As, as the, and, but I'm sure, I am absolutely sure that when the times comes, and by the way, Summit at Oak Ridge, 
it's actually based on IBM technologies. I mean, it's not like the lab built it itself. You know, it's actually IBM computers put together in a way that is designed by, uh, by that. So what I'm saying is, at some point, it will come the time where IBM will start basically putting these things massively in scale, and then that's where we'll be start using it because that's actually when we start transitioning. So I think that's one one of the space that it's worth looking into, you know, for the future. And I'm sure it's actually kind of directly, but I will foresee that it will take still a little bit of action to get there. Now, what is the largest impediment to advancing in your space? Is it computing? Is it humans in their minds? Like, what is it? I would say it's a combination of people in terms of what, you know, not necessarily what they're capable of, but how far they want to go with it and money. And the two things are actually connected. The days where you could give a bunch of people, a bunch of scientists, free level to say, develop the next big thing, as long as it takes, they're over. If you look at, you know, the transistor was basically made that way. It says, look, you know, you got to, this is not something developing a year or not. The cycle of science development right now is much shorter and much more applied, which basically means that if you want to develop something, you'll be given by anything. By, by the way, it's sponsored by, it doesn't matter. It could be corporate environments, it could be companies, big companies, small companies, government, doesn't matter. The funding cycle is much shorter. It says, okay, look, you have one year to prove that your idea has some merit, then you may have another year to develop it, and then one other year to commercialize it, which if you think, think about it, it's, it's obscene. I mean, it's like preposterous almost because science, if, if I had the answer to all my questions right now, that wouldn't be science. That would be R&D. And I would have a company. But that's science. In science, we don't have all the answers. In fact, science is about getting some of the answers that will allow us actually to answer. So the mentality is much shorter. And that is because regardless if you're in a company or if you're in the government, there's no guarantee that the funding will continue. And so there's a push towards making sure that within the means available, you're getting the best of it. That's at least what the funding agency actually does. Um, they have a fixed budget. And you don't know. Maybe, you know, if you're a government, the administration is changing. And so you don't know if the next administration will pick up on that. And I don't mean that just in the U.S. That's everywhere. Uh, or if a new thing, maybe because the, 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 the pace of development is so fast, maybe there's a new technology that comes along. And, you know, you may be investing the wrong thing. So you don't want to invest too long on something that might actually be superseded by something else coming somewhere else. So this combination of cautiousness, but at the same time, rapid returns, it's somewhat, I'm not going to say detrimental, but places a lot of emphasis, I would say, more than on wild ideas uh, into something that is more evolutionary. And so that doesn't mean that innovation doesn't take place. But if it does... Uh, it has to be something that, you know, it comes with very big constraints in terms of deliverable. So, for example, if you're asking for money for the government to do something, it's not going to say, oh, I'm going to make the next big carbon fiber. It's not going to fly. That's not going to go anywhere. Um, what they want is to say, we want the next carbon fiber that does this, this, and that. It has this performance metrics. It has to cost this much. And it has to be delivered by, you know, the next five years, five, ten years, let's say. Those are the constraints. And then you have to work out your research project your questions that you have within those kind of frames. So and if you don't, then you're basically not becoming a competitor. So to me, it's just the way it is. I mean, that's it's not something that, and it's just the way it is. But it, it is some sort of limit towards 
what we could otherwise be achieving if we have a little bit more freedom. And by freedom, I don't mean to say go crazy, but again, we don't have all the questions answered when we start science. You know, it's just, again, science is not, that's not just science. So to me, that's kind of the biggest limitations. Computers, sure, they can be faster, but you can do a lot these days with computers. I mean, just look at the kind of microscope or telescopes that are available these days. They're remarkable. You can get a lot done. And in fact, accessibility, thanks to the federal government, I, I must say, it's been phenomenal. I mean, you, we can access tools that otherwise wouldn't be available to us. I mean, we use microscopes in national labs for free that would otherwise cost you know, 30 millions to acquire. Uh, and they're free. And that is because, again, that's how the government helps developing new technologies or even, you know, new science that is actually asked. So those things are available, cheaply accessible, meaning that it's not like it gets crazy to actually get access. No, no, it's not. Again, it's the idea of how far, if you're too far out there in terms of the ideas, how far is too far out? And so that's kind of the limit to me. Well, you don't want to ask me because I, I like to go really far. <laughs> I'm, an ex- I'm an explorer. No, I'm the same way. I mean, unfortunately, so if you look at, for example, the James Webb Telescope, it took $20 billion or so to be built. It took 20 years to actually do it. But there was commitment from the government to do so. If I personally, you know, went out to say, okay, I'm going to build this kind of thing, they'll do it. And uh, the government, you know, may have said, oh, like 20 years, 20 billions, forget it. You know, it's not going to happen. So, you know, it's, 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 it, it, it really depends. And it must, be, it must be because if everybody start asking for that, you know, you're not, you're not going to get there unnecessarily. So there's an upside to that, that I should say. And that is sometimes as a scientist, you go too far out. And it's okay. It's just the way we are. But the world has pressing needs, right? You do have to face climate change, for example, but you know, you do have to face a lot of things that are actually happening right now. And you don't have the age of the universe to actually fix them. And so having some constraints could be a good thing. Basically meaning like, is the idea that I have really a good idea? Meaning something that could be, I'm not going to be here in 10 years still looking at the answer for it when there might not be one. Number one. Number two, which is also important, is because it, it gives you context. It gives you the ability to say, how does this thing relate to reality, to the needs that we actually have? And number three, it kind of takes you out from the bubble that you live in. Um, in this case, it's a scientific bubble. It says, you know, I have the best rate. You know, and my colleagues think I'm great. I don't have to worry about anything else. And then it says, what about your irrelevant? So it takes you out from that bubble and it puts you into right into, into societal context. Could be manufacturing, it could be like a company in the needs of a new manufacturing process or a new product, or it could be the government in the needs of actually literally find a crisis to a solution. I mean, right now, the government, specifically the Department of Energy, is incredibly interested in anything that could be helpful to extract new critical materials, minerals, uh, lithium, nickel, cobalt, and a bunch of others that are in critical supply right now. Anything that you can find that to actually process anything that you can find from old mines, waste, anything that you can get your hands on, then you can extract this material that we can use for anything, it's highly needed. Something that as a scientist to say, okay, but you know, it's good, it's good, but it's, it's, it's kind of specific too, right? And, but no, but it forces you to actually be in a place where you start facing reality. So it's not always a bad thing to have constraints. It could be actually quite good in its own way. 
Thank you so much for listening. And if you found this episode useful, please share it with a friend or a colleague who you think would get value from it. And if you have topics that you would like to hear discussed on the podcast, either add me on LinkedIn or send me an email, joel at moderncto.io. Every time I get an email or LinkedIn message, it absolutely makes my day and inspires me to keep going.